Alright, I invite you to open your Bible to John 19, the Gospel of John chapter 19. And as you do that, I want you to think about how we read the Bible, how you read the Bible. Often when we read the Bible, we may not realize we're doing this, but we want to identify ourselves with the heroes in the story. Nobody wants to read the Bible and go, oh, I think I'm one of the Pharisees. You know, no, nobody wants to read the Bible and go, you know, I'm feeling just like Pilate today. You know, that's not what we want. We want to see ourselves more like Joseph or more like Peter, at least on his good days. Right. But if we're honest with ourselves, we're more like the broken and needy people that Jesus healed and helped. We're not the heroes. In fact, really, neither are people like Joseph or Peter, even Moses or Paul. The Bible has only one true hero. That's God himself. There are others who act heroically. There are others who are worthy of imitation to a degree. So Paul, for example, says, be imitators of me as I am of Christ. Right, so follow me as I follow Christ kind of thing. But at the point that we have reached in the Gospel of John, in the story of Jesus, it is crystal clear that there is only one hero. Because at this point, Jesus is alone. And his Father is with him, but the disciples have left him. Peter, remember, wielded his sword trying to fight for Jesus, uh, perhaps to defend Jesus. But after Jesus told him to put away his sword, Peter denied Jesus three times. I don't even know him. Not connected to him. Don't associate me with him. Peter believed that Jesus was the Messiah, the promised Savior. But apparently... He thought Jesus was the kind of Messiah who would live, who would reign, who would win, who would conquer, who would run Rome out of Israel. He didn't realize, even though Jesus had told him, that Jesus was a Messiah who would reign and would conquer, but would do so through willingly laying down his life for others. Jesus stands alone before the high priest. Jesus stands alone before Pilate. Jesus endures mockery and scorn and abuse alone. He's not crucified alone, but he's crucified with criminals. He tells Pilate, That he is a king, but that his kingdom is not of this world. His followers don't fight for him like earthly kings. Jesus tells Pilate that he was born not to reign, which is what we would expect him to say, as a king. But instead he says he was born to bear witness to the truth. That's not what the people wanted, it turns out. That's why they wanted him dead. But thankfully, Jesus came not to give us what we want, but what we need. And that's 
him. So let's look together at the Gospel of John, chapter 19. I'm going to read for us verses 1 through 16. Jesus, again, has already stood before the high priest. He's already stood before Pilate. And this is what happens next. 19, beginning verse 1, says, Then Pilate took Jesus and flogged him. And the soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head and arrayed him in a purple robe. They came up to him saying, Hail, King of the Jews, and struck him with their hands. The Pilate went out again and said to them, See, I am bringing him out to you that you may know that I find no guilt in him. So Jesus came out, wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe. Pilate said to them, Behold the man. When the chief priests and the officers saw him, they cried out, Crucify him! Crucify him! And Pilate said to them, Take him yourselves and crucify him, for I find no guilt in him. The Jews answered him, We have a law, and according to that law, he ought to die because he has made himself the Son of God. When Pilate heard this, this statement, he was even more afraid. He entered his headquarters again and said to Jesus, Where are you from? But Jesus gave him no answer. So Pilate said to him, You will not speak to me? Do you not know that I have authority to release you and authority to crucify you? Jesus answered him, You would have no authority over me at all, unless it had been given you from above. Therefore he who delivered me over to you has the greater sin. From then on, Pilate sought to release him. But the Jews cried out, If you release this man, you are not Caesar's friend. Everyone who makes himself a king opposes Caesar. So when Pilate heard these words, he brought Jesus out and sat down on the judgment seat at a place called the Stone Pavement and in Aramaic, Gabbatha. Now it was the day of preparation of the Passover. It was about the sixth hour. He said to the Jews, Behold your king. They cried out, Away with him! Away with him! Crucify him! Pilate said to them, Shall I crucify your king? The chief priests answered, We have no king but Caesar. So he delivered him over to them to be crucified. Now, we've already mentioned, and everybody knows, that Peter denied Jesus three times. What we're not as familiar with is the fact that Pilate, who remember Pilate is a Roman governor. He's not a Jew. He's serving Rome and Rome is ruling over Israel. Israel is not free. And so Pilate is not the friend of the Jews, right? He's not a friend of Jesus. But Pilate three times tells the people, "I find no guilt." In Jesus, I find no guilt in him. At the end of chapter 18, in verse 38, he brought, uh, he came back and spoke to the Jews and said, I find no guilt in him. In verse 4 of chapter 19, Pilate goes out again and says, I'm bringing him out to you that you may know that I find no guilt in him. Then again in verse 6, Pilate says, Take him yourselves and crucify him, for I find no guilt in him. If Pilate finds no guilt in Jesus, then why is Jesus going to die? There are multiple reasons, multiple answers to that question. Part of it is 
political, as we'll see, the way the Jews manipulate Pilate to try to compel him to crucify Jesus. But John is telling us something else. John is making clear by quoting Pilate's words those three times that as Jesus goes to the cross, he is going to his death for no guilt of his own, no sin of his own. He has done nothing to deserve death whatsoever, but he is going to his death for us, for those who do deserve it, for those who have sinned, for those who do deserve to die. As Peter will say later, once he finally understands what is taking place, in 1 Peter 3, he says, Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. Jesus is righteous, Jesus is sinless, Jesus is guiltless, as even Pilate recognizes. And that's the point. He's the righteous one, he's the sinless one, the guiltless one, Dying for us, the guilty, the sinner, the needy. Jesus has acknowledged to Pilate that he's a king. And those who are abusing, persecuting Jesus, preparing him for crucifixion, they mock the idea of Jesus as king. This is one of the most bitter ironies in the Bible that Jesus who is truly the king of kings the lord of the universe the creator right the one through whom the father created everything these people who are his own creation his own creatures scoff and mock and make fun of the idea of Jesus being a king that's why they put the purple robe on him. That's why they make him a crown, but they make it out of thorns and put it on his head. And in verse 3 it says they, they come up to him and they say, hail king of the Jews, just dripping with sarcasm, right? And mockery. They think it's ridiculous that someone like Jesus could be a king. After all, these men serve Caesar. Apparently, by outward appearances, the most powerful person on the planet. And Jesus, in this moment, looks like one of the weakest people on the planet. But that's just because they can't see. They don't know the truth. They don't understand what they're doing. Pilate, after he's had Jesus flogged and he's been mocked and he's been humiliated and Peter, uh, Pilate says there's no guilt in him, <clears throat> he brings Jesus out for them to see him dressed in this robe and this crown of thorns. And when the chief priests see him in verse 6, they don't say, okay, that's enough. You've clearly, you know, almost destroyed Jesus. That's, that's enough. We're satisfied now. No, they are not satisfied. Instead, now they cry out for Pilate to crucify him. They want Jesus dead. They want him to be killed. They want to put an end to him. What they don't know is, though they are sinning, though they are betraying their Messiah, their King, their God, 
that they're at the same time, in some mysterious way, fulfilling God's plan. Jesus had to die. Jesus said He would be crucified. Again, so that He could take our place. Peter says in 1 Peter 2, that He Himself bore our sins in His body on the tree. That we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By His wounds you have been healed. The reason Jesus is not fighting this, the reason Jesus is not resisting this, the reason Jesus is not pleading with Pilate to let him off is that Jesus knows this is exactly why he came. But Peter wants us to look not only at what Jesus did for us, but also to learn from how Jesus did it so that we might imitate his example. First and foremost, Jesus died so that we could be saved, so that we could be forgiven, so that we could have new life. But also in his death, he gives us an example to follow. He shows us how we should live in a world that is hostile to us, just like it was hostile to him. Remember earlier in John, Peter was telling his disciples over and over, the world hated me, they're going to hate you. You just need to get ready. They're going to persecute you. They're They're going to do all kinds of terrible things to you. Don't be surprised when it comes. But also learn from Jesus how to respond to those kinds of things. So Peter says in 1 Peter 2, he says, To this you have been called. And he's talking about suffering even when you've not done anything wrong. You've not done anything to deserve it. He says, To this you have been called because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. Alright, and then here's what that example looked like. Peter says, He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. When people were sinning against him, He did not use that as an excuse for him to sin in retaliation. Sometimes we try to go that route, right? Well, they're they're clearly doing evil things to me. They're sinning against me. So that justifies whatever kind of response I feel like I need to give back. Even if it's technically wrong, I feel like I'm okay because they started it. That's not how Jesus modeled for us, how we should respond to injustice and suffering and persecution. He committed no sin. He didn't lie. There was no deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he didn't revile in return. He didn't give back as good as he got. He kept quiet, trusted God to take care of him. That's what he wants us to do as well. If we're his followers, we signed up to do as he's done. That's what it looks like. After that, it says that the Jews, when you know, Pilate's trying not to crucify Jesus, he doesn't want to kill him, he's got no reason to kill him. Verse 7 says you know, the Jews are pressing their case. So we've got a law. According to this law, Jesus needs to die. And the Jews don't have the authority to put anybody to death. So that's why they're, they're pressing Pilate. And what they say in verse 7 is that according to this law, he ought to die because... He has made himself the son of God. Now at this point, Pilate gets scared. Why is he scared? 
There's clearly something different about Jesus. Pilate's seen that already. Jesus is not acting probably like anybody else that Pilate has ever dealt with. Pilate knows Jesus hasn't done anything wrong. Perhaps he's heard some of the rumors about Jesus' ministries, miracles, and stuff too. We, we don't know. But when he hears that Jesus is the Son of God, that makes Pilate tremble. We're not told why, but it's not hard to imagine Pilate as a Roman. He knew the, what we now know as you know, mythology that the Romans and the Greeks believed. There are all kinds of you know, offspring of deities, gods and half-gods and you know, demigods and all that kind of thing. And so Pilate's probably thinking of some of those stories and being like, who do I have on my hands? Who, who am I messing with? What is going to happen to me? If I'm involved in putting to death somebody who's a son of a god, Pilate wants out of the situation. Bad. But he doesn't understand the truth. He doesn't understand that Jesus is not just a son of a god like all those ancient mythologies. He's the son of the god. That he's God himself, the the one true god. And he's fully God in the flesh. If he'd known that, he would have surely run away from the situation as fast as he could. He does try to get out of it though. Uh, the, the Jews won't let him. They keep squeezing him. They keep pushing him. And Pilate is trying to get Jesus to talk. He's trying to figure out who Jesus is. After he hears that Jesus is the Son of God, or at least claims to be, he goes back to Jesus in verse 9. And he says, where are you from? Give me more of your story because the things that they're telling me about you are making me nervous. Who are you? And Jesus doesn't answer. If Jesus had started telling him the truth, again, Pilate probably would have wanted him to let let him go. But Jesus doesn't want Pilate to let him go. Jesus is deliberately going to the cross. So he doesn't say anything. So that makes Pilate frustrated. And he does what fearful leaders often do. He starts making threats. So he says to Jesus in verse 10, You will not speak to me? Do you not know that I have authority to release you and authority to crucify you? Your life is in my hands. Why won't you talk to me? Jesus says, my life's not in your hands. Not really. He says in verse 11, You would have no authority over me at all unless it had been given you from above. Pilate, you don't have authority over me. You don't have authority to decide whether I live or die. Now, you do have some authority in this moment, right? But it's just authority that's been given to you. It's not true authority. It's not ultimate authority. That belongs only to God. And since Jesus is God, Jesus is the one who really has authority in this situation. Despite what Pilate thinks, what Jesus said back in John 10 is still true. He said about himself and about his life, he said, No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my Father. So Jesus is essentially saying, You know, Pilate, you can sentence me to death. Because you've been put in this position as the governor and all that. But that authority ultimately comes from God. Ultimately comes from me and from my Father. The one who really has authority in this situation is me. And I have decided to lay my life down. And I will take it up again when it's time. 
on the third day. You don't have any real authority here at all. And that's true of all the rulers of this world. None of them have as much authority as they often think. The only one with true and ultimate and lasting and unlimited authority is God himself. Everyone else who has any measure of authority has that authority on loan from God. Romans 13 says, Let every person be subject to the governing authorities for or because there is no authority except from God. And those that exist have been instituted by God. The authority they have is a gift. It's on loan. It's temporary. And it's not ultimate. Ultimate authority belongs to God, which is why Psalm 66 teaches us to sing, Come and see what God has done. He is awesome in His deeds toward the children of man. He turned the sea into dry land. Talking about the Exodus, right? They passed through the earth, excuse me, um, passed through the river on foot. Maybe talking about the Jordan going into the promised land. There did we rejoice in him who rules by his might forever, whose eyes keep watch on the nations. Let not the rebellious exalt themselves. Did Pharaoh have as much authority as he thought he did? Nope. When God said, it's time for my people to go, away they went, and there wasn't a thing Pharaoh could do to stop them. God is the only true and lasting and ultimate king. Jesus himself is the king of kings. And that's what makes what's going on here so terrible and so tragic. Pilate doesn't want to crucify Jesus. Verse 12 says, from then on, Pilate sought to release him. And he wants to let Jesus go. But the Jews continue to press Pilate and they begin to manipulate him. They start to push Pilate where it hurts. Pilate's job as a governor of Judea, appointed by Rome, is to make sure that Caesar's will is carried out in Jerusalem. Right? That's his job. He's representing Caesar. He's protecting Caesar's interests. And one of the things that Caesar wants is to make sure that the people under his authority don't rebel and don't cause an uprising and don't, you know, don't, don't try to cast off the rule of Rome. He's just trying to keep things in order. And so the Jews know that. And so here's what they say. Verse 12, if you release this man, you are not Caesar's friend. Everyone who makes himself a king opposes Caesar. So they say, Pilate, your job is to make sure that there are no other kings rising up to lead rebellions against Caesar. That's that's your job. And we're telling you that this man is claiming to be a king, the king of the Jews. If you don't deal with him, you're not on Caesar's side. And what's implied in that is probably, and we'll tell him. We'll let him know. And you'll be out of here. If, you know, you escape with your life. It might be a life and death kind of thing. I don't know. But at least they're threatening Pilate's job and livelihood and reputation. Maybe even more than that. 
So that's why it says in verse 13, so when Pilate heard these words, he brought Jesus out, sat down on the judgment seat, and so on. He's going to go through with it. Why? Because he's been manipulated, because he's been pressed back into a corner. It's still not right. He still shouldn't have done it. But you see what the religious leaders are doing to try to make sure that Jesus ends up dead, that Jesus ends up crucified. And the lengths to which they are willing to go to do that are nothing short of terrifying. Because when Pilate sits down on this judgment seat and he brings Jesus out, right, or presents him to them and he says, Behold your king, in verse 14. Then the Jews who were there, the, the religious leaders who were there, they, they cry out these terrifying words. And, and what's terrifying is not just that they say, Away with him, away with him, crucify him. That, that's bad enough because crucifixion, we all know, was a horrible horrible way to die. It was designed to inflict maximum pain and suffering leading up to your death. Not just to kill you, right, but to make you suffer for a long time on the way. But what is even more terrifying than their calls for Pilate to crucify Jesus is what they say in verse 15. Pilate says to them, shall I crucify your king? Crucifixion is for criminals. For the lowest of the low, the wickedest of the wicked. You want me to crucify your king? And they say, we have no king but Caesar. Now here's why that's so terrible. This kind of thing has happened before in Israel's history. It's worse this time. It was bad enough the first time. The words they are echoing, in a way, are words from back before David became king, back in 1 Samuel. Samuel was a prophet, uh, he was a judge, he was a leader of the people of Israel, and when he got old, the people got concerned about who was going to lead them after Samuel. And so they said to him, this is in 1 Samuel 8, they said to him, Behold, you are old, and your sons do not walk in your ways. Now appoint for us a king to judge us like all the nations. But the thing displeased Samuel, it says, when they said, give us a king to judge us. And Samuel prayed to the Lord. And the Lord said to Samuel, obey the voice of the people and all that they say to you. But they have not rejected you. But they have rejected me from being king over them. They wanted a king like all the other nations. They wanted to be like all the other people. Though they were different, though they were set apart, though they had God as their king, God as their Lord, God as their leader, God as their warrior, they wanted to be like everybody else. And they rejected God. They rejected him as king. We don't want you as king. We want a normal king. We want a king like everybody else has. And guess what? They got one. And it was pretty terrible. Just like God warned them it would be. Here it's even worse. Because Jesus is standing in front of them. He is their king. And he has come to lay down his life for them. And instead they say, we'd like the pagan king on the throne with the sword. We don't want 
the suffering king, the healing king, the merciful king. We want the powerful king. We want the violent king. We've got no king but Caesar. That's who we serve. That's who we will follow. They literally chose Caesar over Christ. They chose violence and political expediency over peace and righteousness. They chose the way of the world over the way of the Lord. And they did it while thinking they were in the right. Remember the high priest had said earlier, look, this is easy, guys. What do we want to do? We want to let Jesus live and risk Rome coming down on us because we have this guy who's leading all these people and all this, or, or we just have Jesus die so we can save the nation. It's not hard. That's what Caiaphas said they should do. They thought they were in the right. They thought they were doing what was best. They thought they were preserving their country, their nation as best as they could. But as they did so, they were rejecting Jesus. They were rejecting the Lord. They were rejecting God. Now, is that just me? Or does that feel eerily familiar? Christ or Caesar? Worldly power or the power of God shown in weakness? A suffering Messiah or a king with a sword? Which one will we serve? Which one has your allegiance. Now I know this is not your typical 4th of July weekend sermon. Right? That feels obvious at this point. But let me say a couple of things about why I'm preaching this right now. The first is most of you know that I didn't pick this text for this weekend. Right? This is I was looking at my notes this this past week. This is my 55th sermon through the Gospel of John, which means we started preaching through John over a year ago. This is just where we are. This is where we landed for this weekend. Make of that what you will, right? The second thing I want to say about this sermon is this. The best citizens of any earthly country are those who know they are citizens of heaven and who seek first the kingdom of God. No matter how zealously patriotic someone might be, and I'm not against patriotism, I am patriotic. I, I mean, just look, look around you, right? We're not against patriotism here. But no matter how zealously patriotic someone might be, if they make an idol of their country, they do not serve their country well. Let me give you, let me put it in, in different terms to help us see how clear this is, right? If you make an idol of your spouse, if you put them up on a pedestal where they become your God, they are your ultimate reason for existing, you give everything to them and you expect everything from them, right? Does that serve your spouse well? Is that good for them? No one can bear, no, no mere human being can bear that kind of weight. And when you treat someone like that, you can't 
correct them when they need to hear the truth. It's not healthy. It's not a good situation. And the same is true of a country. Someone who thinks their country is always right, can do no wrong, bears no criticism, because the country is ultimate, does not serve themselves or their country well. Because no country can bear that weight. No country is perfect. No, no leader of a country always does what's right. We need to be able to say, this is wrong, and this is right, and we need to do what's right. We need to be able to be willing to be like Daniel and Shadrach and Meshach and Abednego. They're willing to serve Nebuchadnezzar as long as he's not asking them to treat Nebuchadnezzar or Babylon like a god. When the king says, you can only pray to me, Daniel says, well, can't go that far. I'll serve you. I'll help you. I'll be part of your government. But I can't go that far. When he says to Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, hey, look at this really cool thing I've built. Whenever you hear the music, you need to bow down and worship it. We'll do lots of things you ask us to do, but we won't do that, even if it means you throw us in the fiery furnace, because we can't worship another God. We've only got one. You've got to be able to draw the line and say, that's not God. That's not what God wants us to do. Any leader or any person who expects unquestioning allegiance is more like Nebuchadnezzar or Caesar than Christ. Only Christ is worthy of our complete and total allegiance. People haven't changed much since Jesus' day. We can see our own weaknesses reflected in the people in this story. We can see our weaknesses in Peter. We can see our weaknesses in Pilate. We can see our weaknesses in the religious leaders. People haven't changed much. And in some ways, our choices haven't changed much either. still have a choice. Is your king Caesar? Or is your king Christ? The good news is, though, that Jesus has not changed either. He didn't bend to Peter's objections when Peter said, that's not what's going to happen to you. Jesus didn't bend to Pilate's expectations. He bore witness to the truth. He fulfilled the Father's plan. He gave himself up for us. He died for Peter who denied him and expected him to be someone different. He died even for those who for a time rejected him. Because here's the good news. Even someone, this is how great Jesus' love and mercy and grace is, even someone who on this day might have said, I have no king but Caesar, can have Christ as their king now if they'll repent and say, I was wrong. Jesus is Lord, and I'll follow him. That's how great his mercy is. That's how great his forgiveness is. He is Lord, and everyone who bows their knee to him receives full pardon and life 
and forgiveness and a place in the kingdom of God. And then once you're in that kingdom, your job is just to follow the king. Do as he did. Trust him. He'll take care of you.